Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. My name is Trevor Mears. I am, uh, have the honor of being one of your deacons here at Sailorville. I'm also a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary with an eye on seeing where God might lead in ministry in the future. And as I came up on stage this morning, I realized it's, it's a good thing that from a previous life, I have an OSHA safety certificate. So I can navigate this without injuring myself or anyone else. Uh, it is, it's a huge honor that uh, Pastor Pat has asked me to close out our series on Ruth this morning. We've had a tremendous series from Pastor Pat, Pastor Kurt, and our evangelism director, John Nemers, and uh, is my prayer that we'll finish well today as we wrap up this epic family story in the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the last page in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. And as we get settled in there, I want to ask you a question if you're like me in this way. Do you have a real tendency to overlook the obvious? And I'm not just talking about the sunglasses that are on your head that you can't find, or the ketchup that you can't see in the fridge because it's not on your eye level. I'm talking about missing some really important things. And I can give you an example. Last summer, I was headed to downtown Des Moines uh, for a meeting at a charity where I serve on the board, and it's a great cause. It's gospel-centered. It is focused on helping young people find Christ to change their lives, change their families' lives, change their communities. So as I head down there, I'm feeling really good about all the good that I'm doing in the world by being involved there. And I am even listening to a sermon as I drive there. So I'm in the zone, right? And we have our planning meeting, and we walk out of the building, and we stop in the parking lot, and I turn to one of the people who was in the meeting with me to finish some brilliant thought that we had been working on. And as we're talking, I see the charity's director go racing past my shoulder, and I follow the path he's on, and I see he's heading toward Hickman Avenue, and I see a woman lying halfway in the traffic lane of Hickman Avenue. And he helps her out, out of the street, he calls 911, the paramedics arrive, they start helping her, and while all this is going on, I'm desperately trying to find, can I hold somebody's bag, or can I like make a call, or can I direct traffic? Because I've blown it. The guy who works with the charity, meant to help that neighborhood, did not even see a woman literally lying in the street 15 yards in front of my face. And here's what makes that even worse. You know what sermon I was listening to on the way there? Guess, the Good Samaritan. The story about the guy who finds somebody lying in the road. Sometimes God, he makes his point with irony. And that night he made it in a heavy way to me. So I, I sent a text to the people at that meeting that night. I confessed, I said, I, I blew it. And with the Holy Spirit's help, I hope to do better. That night, I felt like God was telling me, son, I need you to lift up your eyes. I need you to see what's going on around you, the people in your life, and I need you to see the bigger priorities that I am working through in your life. As we finish the book of Ruth, we want to do the same thing. We want to lift up our eyes, and we want to make sure that we don't overlook what God was actually doing in this epic family drama. So let's read Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. There's a lot to absorb in just that short run of verses at the end of Ruth. And to help us to make sure we don't miss the summary of what's been going on this whole time, we hear from the same verses that open the book, the women in the village of Bethlehem. Back in chapter one, we see these women look at Naomi as she comes back from Moab, and they say, can this be Naomi? Look what what has happened to her. And now those same people come back at the end here, and they bring the story home by reminding Naomi of the journey that she's been on that God has taken her on, what he's done in her life. Look at where Naomi was back in chapter one. The book is six verses old, and all she has to show for her family moving to Moab is three graves in the desert, her husband and her sons buried back in Moab, and this tag-along daughter-in-law that is pretty much a symbol of all that's failed in Naomi's life. But now at the end of the story, the women of Bethlehem, they're looking at Naomi's life, and they're summarizing this happy ending that she's found. Naomi has a redeemer in Boaz. The words redeem, buy, or purchase, they appear 22 times in this book to make sure we don't miss it. Also, Naomi has a grandson and Ruth, who is better than seven sons, they tell her. So today I want you to think about this. What would chapter four say about your life? What if you had narrators who could come around and say, let us tell you what we've seen God doing this whole time? And specifically, I want to encourage you to think about three questions we're going to ask that are wrapped around the three main human characters in this book. In chapter 1, verse 5, Naomi has Ruth following her back to Bethlehem. They've crossed the desert, they've crossed the mountains, and this whole time, Ruth is following Naomi, and Naomi is basically treating her like a stray dog. She turns to her three times in chapter 1. She says, go home, go back where you came from. Just like that dog that follows you around the neighborhood, you're like, get, go back where you came from. That's how she's treating her. And to Naomi, Ruth is not just a living symbol of what's happened to her family, being devastated. Ruth, she's actually worse than if Naomi had come home by herself because she's showing up with this pagan Moabite woman trailing her back to her hometown. When Naomi declares herself bitter in chapter one, she says, call me Mara, bitterness. My name is not Naomi anymore. When she does that, she looks around at her life. She takes stock of her assets and she doesn't even think Ruth is worth counting. In chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi says, The Lord has brought me back empty. And Ruth is standing right there. She's followed her all the way back from Moab. Naomi does not even list Ruth as something valuable in her life. But by the end of the book, what we just read, God is listing Ruth in the family line of David, which is the family line of Jesus Christ. And by the end of the book, the women of Bethlehem have told Naomi, Ruth, who you didn't even count, is worth more than seven sons to you. So that's our first question this morning. Who is your Ruth? Who are you overlooking that God has placed in your life as a resource for you? If you take stock of God's blessings in your life and you're not counting the people around you, you're making the same mistake that Naomi did in chapter one. Now you might be thinking, hey, if you knew the people in my life, you wouldn't be counting them as a blessing. But be clear. If you start writing people off because of mistakes in their past, you're reading a different Bible than I am. 
Ruth was worthless from a social standpoint. In fact, she was worse than, worth, worse than worthless. She was a pagan. She was an enemy of the people that had followed Naomi home. The Moabites actually originated in scandal. We talked about this earlier in the series, but in Genesis 19, Lot sleeps with his own daughter, and that gives rise to the nation of Moab. That's the legacy that Ruth is bringing back with her to Bethlehem. But, God, but Ruth was the person that God was going to use to change Naomi's life. Ruth was the person God would use to change every one of our lives through the coming of Christ. And God's use of people that we would tend to discard, that goes way beyond Ruth in this story. Look at that lineage that we just read at the end of the book, the lineage of King David. Do you wonder who this Perez is that gets mentioned a couple times? We don't have time to unpack his whole story, but know this. Perez was the result of an illicit affair between his parents, Judith and Tamar. You can read that whole story in Genesis chapter 38. So this brief lineage here in Ruth 4, you see the whole thing unpacked more deeply in Matthew chapter 1. And when we get to Matthew chapter 1, we find out that the lineage of Christ also includes Rahab, who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. So let's review. The family line of Jesus Christ includes a converted pagan in Ruth, an illegitimate child in Perez, and a converted prostitute in Rahab. If God can use all of them to bring Jesus into the world, how dare we think he can't use the messed up people around us? And if God could use those kinds of people to bring Jesus into the world, don't ever think he can't use me and he can't use you because of the mistakes we've made. If you think you have messed up too many times for God to use you, you're not reading the same Bible that I am. Look at the people who are in the Bible stories. God created the nation of Israel out of Abraham after Abraham got tired of waiting on God and got his servant girl pregnant. God's plan was bigger than Abraham's failings. God turned the nation of Israel into a world power and sent the Savior through the line of King David after David had committed adultery and murder. God's plan was bigger than David's failings. And God's plan is bigger than mine. Thank God for that. He's bigger than yours, no matter what they are. God can save you after what you've done. If you repent and you follow Christ and he makes you a new creature in him. A couple of months ago, I was talking with a young man. He grew up in a biblically sound family, but after high school, he'd walked away from church. He hadn't paid much attention to spiritual things, but he recently moved back. We've been doing Bible studies and he's coming back to God. He's finding hope in following God again and direction in his life. And the subject recently turned to sharing the gospel with others. And he said, yeah, I don't think I can share the gospel with anybody. After the life I've lived, I'll have zero credibility. And I said, brother, that is the gospel story. The change that's been made in your life, that is the credibility of Jesus Christ, how he changes people's lives, no matter where they've been. Have you ever heard this old question? Why does God use flawed people? Because that's all there are. That's all he's got to work with. Earlier this year, I saw this point in a whole new way. I was reading the resurrection story around Easter. And it says this in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, that's really significant in a couple of ways. Number one, if the gospel writers had been making all this up, as some people would allege, they never would have made a woman the first witness to the empty tomb because in that era, women were not even credible witnesses in court. So that tells us there's a true story happening here. But secondly, we have to look at exactly which woman was the first witness to the resurrected Christ. It's Mary Magdalene. 
This is a woman whom Jesus had saved from seven demons. Luke chapter 8. When I read that verse out loud in a Bible study around Easter, it stopped me in my tracks because it hit me. Of course that had to be the woman who was the first one to see the empty tomb. Who knew more than Mary Magdalene what Jesus' salvation meant? She'd been saved from it. She saw the work he'd done in her life. God uses people with paths. Don't overlook them. One of the greatest assets in your life might be a Ruth who is standing right there beside you. And don't overlook how God can work in your life. In chapter one, Naomi, she thought her life was over. She found herself bitter. She found herself empty. But we know she was only at the beginning of a redemption story that plays out through the book of Ruth. I'm going to show you a video uh, that I've seen a lot, and it never fails to get to me emotionally. And the only setup I will give you is that the kid who's about to carry the football here has cerebral palsy, and everybody else on the field has decided it's going to be his night. You're not misty-eyed, something's wrong with you. I've seen that about 20 times. But, and you've probably seen videos like this before, but one of the things I noticed differently this time is instead of the kid carrying the ball, I was watching all the other kids. Do you see the one at the end run out carrying the crutches for the guy after he scored his touchdown? And I'm thinking, what changes happened in those kids' lives because now they know what it's like to help somebody else achieve a dream. What's that going to do for the way they live after that? And that's a good question to our lead into our second question from the book of Ruth. Who is your Naomi? Who should you be helping as part of God's bigger plan that you don't actually see? In the book of Ruth, Ruth gets a happy ending. She winds up with a wealthy husband. She winds up with a son. She winds up, she doesn't know it yet, but she's in the line of King David and King Jesus. But what she didn't know when she headed into all of that, she didn't know how that story turns out. All she was doing is trying to serve Naomi in the best way that she could. Do you ever wonder what big plan God's working in your life? Of course, we all do. But do you ever wonder if it might start with you simply serving the people around you? And did you ever think that God has been shaping your life the entire time, specifically to help the people that are around you? When we look at Ruth helping Naomi, don't overlook the fact that Ruth is hurting when she does this. Her husband is buried back in Moab. She is a pagan going to Bethlehem where everyone sees her as an enemy and an outcast. When she comes home, the focus is on Naomi, who's so broken the other women say, well, can this be Naomi? But don't overlook Ruth's story. She was a young widow at the time. And these aren't easy times that they're living in. Go read the book of Judges, which is when Ruth takes place. It's lawless. There are mercenaries running everywhere, assassinating people. There are private armies having wars 
People are getting their own private priests so they can worship whoever they want. Yet in the middle of our own personal tragedy, in the middle of a society that's going off the rails, Ruth was committed to serving the God of Israel and serving her mother-in-law who told her to go home. When most of us face a crisis, when we face uncertainty, we have this tendency to turn inward. We focus on our own problem. But some of the best advice has been given to me when I face hard times is look outward. Serve God. Serve other people. Now, I understand when you're in the heat of a problem, it might take all you have to get through every single day. I understand. And when we have open wounds, it's really hard for us to go treat the open wounds of somebody else. But over time, those wounds turn into scars. And we start to regain strength, and we start to regain perspective. And we start to gain the ability to go out and help other people. The Bible is clear on this point. We have to stop looking at our past suffering as a reason we can't help others. And we have to start seeing it as the very mechanism God's going to use for us to serve people. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The word comfort is in there 10 times in five verses, and it is wrapped with suffering and affliction. That's where comfort is coming from. We see the same idea in places like James 1-2, where James, who was a pastor talking to Christians who were persecuted by Rome, he says, take joy when you fall in trial. It will mature you. It will turn you into what God wants you to be. God wants us to understand this. To a Christian, suffering is not a stumbling block. It's a stepping stone. He takes us where he needs us to be. You know how it always feels like nobody knows what you're going through? Somebody else feels that way right now. And they feel that way because of something you've been through. So go find those people. Show them that you get it. You get where they've been. We have people all over this church that do this every week. A couple of our pastors have dealt with depression throughout their life, and now they minister to people who are facing depression. I have a friend in this church who overdosed on drugs and was left to die in a frozen yard. But he recovered, he found Christ, his life changed, now he serves in our addiction recovery ministry. We have a friend in this church who was sexually assaulted years ago, but she found Christ. She found a new life in Christ. Now she helps other people because she knows. She's been there. A couple weeks ago to men's breakfast, uh, one of our deacons opened his journal and he read from the day 12 years ago he lost his job because he wanted other men to know I've been there. Talk to me because I can walk through this with you. So who's the Naomi that you could be reaching out to? What is the ministry of comfort that God has uniquely prepared you to offer? The central point of this series on Ruth is this. There is no coincidences with God. It was no coincidence that Ruth came into Naomi's life. It was no coincidence that Ruth found her way to the field of Boaz, who was going to be the family redeemer. And it's not a coincidence that you come into contact with the people that you do. 
Now, when God uses you as a Ruth in someone else's life, it's probably not going to look immediately like you're part of some grand plan. And Jesus warns us about that. He tells us in Matthew chapter 25, don't overlook what's in front of you. In Matthew 25, 37 through 40, Jesus said, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did that to me. Serve the people around you. Take every opportunity you see as a service opportunity of a lifetime. And now our last point for the series, or sorry, I'm going to tell you one more story. When you help a person in your small way, you never know where it might lead. In 1855, there was a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. And he followed one of his students to the kid's job at a shoe store. He shared the gospel with him. That kid got saved. His name was Dwight L. Moody, and he became one of the greatest evangelists of his century. Dwight L. Moody was preaching, and a man came to him, got assurance of his salvation. His name was Wilbur Chapman. He became an evangelist too. One of Chapman's assistants was a baseball player who had an alcohol addiction. He got saved. His name was Billy Sunday. He became one of the greatest evangelists of the early 20th century. One of Billy Sunday's ministries was in Charlotte, North Carolina. He formed a group of Christian businessmen. They brought an evangelist to town. 1934, a young man went and heard that evangelist. He got saved. His name was Billy Graham, and he led a ministry that led millions to Christ. That's 163 years of people learning the gospel because a Sunday school teacher said, I'm going to go talk to that kid in my class about Jesus. You never know what kindness might lead to in your life. And now let's get to that last question in our series. The book of Ruth, this is a story where you literally can't walk away until the curtain drops if you want to understand what it is all about. Through verse 16 in chapter 4, we just have a great family story going on. We see um, redemption. We see a lot of things turning out. But Naomi doesn't understand it's much bigger than what she thinks. So here's the third question this morning. Who do you see as your redeemer? Pastor Pat asked this question last week, and I'm asking it again today because this is the most important question from the book of Ruth. This is the most important question of your lifetime. Who do you see as your redeemer? Verse 17, chapter 4, it takes this nice family story, and it goes supernova with it because it introduces the name David. And now we understand this entire family drama has been leading to King David. And now where we stand, we understand that was leading to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Naomi realized she needed someone to redeem her and Ruth. But her vision was just a mere shadow of the actual real thing. Does anybody here play chess? I'm acting like I do. I don't. But if you do play chess, but then that's just not enough strategy for you. There's actually another version of chess out there called 3D chess. I don't know if you've ever seen this. This is a real game. So you can move your pieces on multiple tiers. And historians and strategists like to talk about if someone is thinking ahead of everybody else, they're like, boy, that person was playing 3D chess. Well, God's always playing 3D chess. God's playing like a thousand dimensional chess. That's Isaiah 55 verse 9. For the heavens are higher than the earth. So, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. Naomi and Ruth sought to have their physical needs met through a human redeemer, one-dimensional. But their lives led to the last word in the book of Ruth, David. And that's a giant arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. That's three-dimensional. That's a thousand-dimensional. And that's your three-dimensional story, too. No matter what it seems like God is doing in this one dimension that you can see, he is working a larger plan than any of us know. And it always is going to end with the last word of Jesus in your life. John Nimmer said this in the very first sermon in the series. The point of the book of Ruth is not that Naomi got a grandbaby. It's that all of us got a redeemer. This idea of trusting that God is doing something bigger than we can see, that is the essence of the Christian life. After Jesus' resurrection, Thomas came to him. He said, I'll believe when I can touch the wounds. And Jesus led him. But Jesus said this to him in John 20, verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's all of us in this room, if we are a follower of Christ. Ruth received all the benefits that came from Mary and Boaz. But first, she had to place her trust in him. And when she did, Boaz made her a promise. Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. In the dead of night, when Ruth came to Boaz, he said to her, Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. And Boaz delivered. Listen to what a commentator in Warren Wearsby said about what Ruth got when she trusted Boaz. And as you hear this, think in terms of your own life. If you don't have Christ, think about what happened for Ruth when she trusted Boaz. Ruth saw loneliness change to love. She saw toil change to rest. Worry became assurance. Despair became hope. Everything Boaz had became hers when she married him. And that's exactly what Christ is offering to any one of us who recognizes he's the only hope for our sinful heart. He is our only redeemer. Now, I don't know what hardships you face in your life. And it would break my heart if anybody left this room today and said, well, it's easy for that guy to say, I should be strong when it's hard. It's easy for him to say that I should be hard when, when life is difficult. But I want you to understand, it is not easy for me to say that. It was hard for me to write this. It's hard for me to come up and tell you this because I walk through it every day. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about our family story to help illustrate that. This is a picture of my family up there. Uh, we just grew by one a week ago. My daughter, Allie, in the front row there got married eight days ago. So Noah is our brand new son-in-law. Um, and then in the other side of the front row there is my other daughter, Katie. She's about this big and she's 18 years old. And she has a genetic disorder. And I don't talk about that side of our life publicly very much because I've always been committed to not making her or us poster kids. But as I was working on this sermon, God just laid on my heart, how dare you get up and talk about Providence if you're not going to talk about what I've done with you. So I want to tell you a little bit about that. 18 years and three months ago, we were in a hospital room trying to figure out why our new baby wasn't doing the normal things. And the doctor came over and he said, you know what a chromosomal deletion is? And I did. I already knew that's what causes things like Down syndrome and other things. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, I knew that our life was not going to be what we thought it was. 
And I remember I started walking across the room to the bathroom in that, ho in that hospital room because I felt like I was going to throw up. And I never even made it to the bathroom because I passed out halfway there. Just because the weight had come down on me that our life is not what we thought it's going to be. And there was no way for us to predict what these last 18 years and three months have been like. But now I can look back on them. Open wounds are turning to scars for us every day. I'm getting strong again. We can look back on that. And I can ask these three questions from this morning again in light of our own life. Who's your Ruth? Do you think we know what it's like for God to put somebody in our life that no one else thinks is an asset? She's about that big. We have our own Ruth who would be easy to overlook. Who's your Naomi? Funny thing happened to me 18 years and three months ago. All of a sudden, there were needy people in the world. Who knew, right? Uh, they started popping up because now that I was a hurting person myself, I could see it everywhere, and all of a sudden, the world was full of Naomi's, people that we should be going out to help. And who do you see as your redeemer? Because of this unique life that my family has been given, we get occasional glimpses into that three-dimensional chessboard that God's working on in our lives because we know he's the redeemer in charge of all of this. My last two jobs, they came out of thin air through connections I made when we stayed at the Ron McDonald House in Iowa City because Katie had a neck surgery in 2010. We visited, visited Sailorville Church because we knew there was a special needs ministry here. And we said, if they care about people like that, they will care about everybody. And we came and we found that to be true. Since my oldest daughter, Allie, was in elementary school, we have watched her go into classes and situations, find the kid that nobody else wants to talk to, and become their friend. Today, she works with at-risk kids in a gospel-based ministry. I have no doubt that is all because God put her sister in her life. That is what we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Allie knows what it's like to receive comfort in affliction. And she's trying to give the same comfort with which she herself has been comforted. My wife is a counselor here at Sailorville. She became a counselor because she said, I know how lonely and scared and hurt I was back then. And I don't want anybody else to go through that alone. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Has it been hard? Yeah, obviously. Uh, do I still get envious that other people get to do the normal things we don't get to do? I confess that I do. But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. What keeps us from despair? What keeps anybody from despair who's a Christian going through these things? They know it's not about this. It's thousand-dimensional chess God is playing. It's about our Redeemer. Christ is in our life. That's what keeps us going. Naomi did not get what she wanted. She got something better. Through her heartbreak, she got a Redeemer. Through her heartbreak, we all got the Redeemer. Amen. And it all started with Naomi standing in the desert looking at three graves and a life with no hope, as far as she could see from there. Maybe you're facing a situation that makes no sense. Maybe you're still back in chapter one with Naomi, and you're saying, I'm bitter, God has left me empty. 
But remember, by chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi realizes God has not abandoned her after all. When she said this, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. God does not abandon you. In times, good or bad, if you're his child, if you're following Christ, he's working in your life. Think about your future in chapter 4. Think about the people in your community who can come around you and say, let me tell you what God's been doing, that you're so close you can't even see. Don't bail out on that journey just because you don't have a written chapter four in front of you yet. In this epic romance and family drama, that's the book of Ruth, the last word of the book tells us a king is coming. It tells us a savior is coming. And every one of our stories can end there too. We just have to reach out and understand that our story is ultimately about Jesus, the only redeemer that actually matters. Because in the darkest night of our life, Jesus is whispering to us, just like Boaz whispered to Ruth, don't worry, I will do everything for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this family story. It is so much more. We thank you for making it so real and human that we can all relate to Naomi feeling bitter and empty and hopeless, and yet you show us behind the curtain how you're working that entire time. You're going to change her life, and you changed all of our lives because of Ruth's faithfulness, because you were working there, and I led to Christ. We just pray that for anyone in this room today who is sitting here saying, I can't find that kind of hope. All I can find is bleakness in front of me. We pray that you will open their mind to how Christ is the answer. That while we may still suffer in this life, it is not without hope. It is because you are in front of us that we can have hope. We are not crushed. We just pray you will open hearts to that. We thank you for the comfort that you give us. Help us to reach out to do that for the others in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.